Welcome to this lesson, Sunday School lesson, from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad you've joined us for this session. We are going to be starting a new series of lessons on the book of Ezra, and we are using the Nazarene Quarterly. So our Sunday School lessons are coming from that, and we'll be spending the next few weeks on Ezra. Before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We ask that your spirit would be here today and would give us wisdom, Lord, and knowledge into what you have for us in your name. Amen. I've titled this lesson, Ezra, Restoration from Exile. And we are looking at a time when God brings his people back from the land of Babylon. The lesson theme is, In His Mercy. God provides a way back from spiritual exile, but we have to be willing to accept it. Now, most of us have a favorite movie or favorite book, and you're probably thinking of one right now. It seems just to be part of being human that we like stories. There's something about a story that hooks us. The Bible is God's story to us. It begins with the book of Genesis, it ends with Revelation, and it tells one grand epic story, the story of God and his relationship with man. Now, we have a slide I'm going to put up. This story of God and man unfolds in four episodes, and we often refer to this as the four-chapter gospel. You can think of these four episodes as four acts of a play, but there's creation, and fall, and redemption, and then restoration. The first chapters of Genesis tell us about creation, the creation of this natural world, which ends with the creation of man. We are created in God's image. We are designed to reflect the glory of God. But Genesis also tells us of the fall, when man rebels against God, and God's entire creation falls under the curse of sin. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. In the rest of the Bible, we see the third act, God's redemption, and that is brought about through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And finally, in Revelation, we see Act 4 unveiled, the restoration. And uh, I have a scripture on a slide here. This comes from Revelation then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So at the end, we have the restoration, the remaking of all of creation. Now, in the Old Testament, we see these same four acts of God's story. Creation, fall, restoration, uh, redemption, restoration. All four of these modeled for us 
in the story of God's relationship with his people, the chosen people, the people of Israel. In creation, we see God freeing the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt, bringing them into the desert, and then using Moses to establish his covenant with them, to give them uh, his law. And then he brings them into the land of Canaan, their promised land. And God promises through this covenant, he will be their God, they will be his people, if they obey his law. And the first commandment of that law, they are to have no other gods except for him. God requires that they're faithful to him and only to him. But then we come to act two, the fall. The people of Israel are never able to be faithful. They're obedient for a while. Sooner or later, they slip back into idolatry. They go to following other gods. The historical books of the Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, and the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, they tell us this story again and again. We see the people of Israel backsliding into idolatry. And God sends his prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and several others, to warn the people, if you will not be faithful, the land will be destroyed, you will be hauled off to slavery in a foreign nation. And eventually, this happens. The Babylonians invade. They uh, destroy the temple. They crush Jerusalem. Many of the Israelites are slaughtered, and most of the rest are hauled off to Babylon. The story doesn't end there, though. There's redemption. After almost 70 years, God brings the people back from exile. They come back to the promised land. They rebuild Jerusalem. They reestablish the temple and begin the sacrifices again. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell us this part of the story. So the physical exile is over. But the, the Israelites soon realize there's more that God intends to do for them. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel tell them about God's future plans. Uh, and there is a slide for this, verses from Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove this heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the Israelites realized that their spiritual exile wasn't over yet. This new heart had not been given to them. And this sets the stage for the final act, restoration. The people of Israel begin to look forward to the arrival of the Messiah, the one sent from God who would make all things right, who finally would give them this new heart that God had promised. And in the New Testament then, we see the promise of the Messiah fulfilled. We see the coming of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, Emmanuel, God with us. So as we look at this story of God and his chosen people, we see not only the plan for them, but we see God's plan for all of mankind. From the beginning, God intended his salvation to involve more than just the Jewish people. God, in fact, promised Abraham way back at the beginning. 
He tells Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So as we study the history of the Jewish people, we see God's plan of salvation worked out for them, but we also see how God plans to work it out in our lives as well. For this next series of lessons, we will be looking at the book of Ezra, when God brings his people back from exile. We will see what it means for the people of Israel, and we'll also look to see what it means for us today. Now, you remember, Nebuchadnezzar had invaded Judah and had destroyed many of its cities, including finally Jerusalem. The temple itself had been looted and destroyed. Thousands had died, and most of the rest of the people were hauled away to Babylon. Only the poorest of the poor of the land remained. Now, when we pick up today's scripture, the people have been in Babylon for almost 70 years. But then God begins to work in a new way. And so I have a slide that I'm going to put our text up today. And this comes from the book of Ezra, chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 1 through 11. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed them in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver, Sheshbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So, what does this scripture tell us about God? What biblical principles do we see that we can apply to our lives? And I want to bring out two main points. The first main point is, God is a God of restoration. God provides restoration for His people. The people had been warned that exile was coming, but they also had been promised there would be a restoration. Isaiah actually named Cyrus himself as the one who will restore the people from exile. Paul, when he wrote in the New Testament, made it clear, God put a plan of salvation in place for the entire world before the creation of the world. 
So it shows our God is a God of restoration and reconciliation. God's Word is full of promises of restoration to bring back, to make up for years of desolation. God promises He will make the fruitful or He will make uh, the desolate fruitful once again. One of my favorite verses comes from Joel. And in it, uh, Joel says that God will restore the years that the locust have eaten. And a lot of times, you know, we can see how God might restore money or restore jobs or health. But how can God give us back time once we've wasted these years? How can God give those back? But it's unique in God's power. He can even restore those lost years to us. And he promises that he will restore these uh, to our lives. Now, we can also see from this, God's judgment is always tempered with mercy. The original sentence of exile was 70 years. Jeremiah had told them this very plainly. You're going to go to Babylon. You're going to be there for 70 years. But when you start counting up the years, you find out it actually wasn't quite 70 years. God's mercy was in effect. God had cut their sentence short. You know, uh, it, it reminds me when I was in high school in the ninth grade. For some reason, I quit doing my algebra homework. And I came home with an F that six weeks in algebra. And my father set me down and he told me, because you got this F in algebra, I'm going to ground you for six weeks. You can come home after school. You're to stay in the house. You're not to go anywhere else. And so we did that. The first week went by and it was a long week. And the second week went by and it was an even longer week. But then something happened. My dad saw the punishment. I guess he figured I'd been punished enough because he cut it short. And he told me, well, you can go back. You know, you don't have to be grounded anymore. And so we see God doing the same thing as our loving father, God stepping in. And the full 70 years wasn't required of them. And we can see this throughout God's history, that God cut short punishments. Uh, it's interesting where uh, when David was king of Israel, we can see that God had sent a plague among the people because David had, had numbered the people. And uh, the plague was running its course and people were dying by the thousands. But then it talks about how God has mercy and he stops his angel before the destruction becomes too great. So many times in our own lives, I think disaster is averted by the mercy of God. And a lot of times we aren't even aware of it. We don't know what is going on. But we can see this, that God's uh, judgment is tempered with mercy. We also see God's restoration begins with him making the first step. God reaches out to us. In his mercy, he makes the first moves. Our, our scripture today said, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus to make a proclamation. And then it says, The family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved. And so we can see from this that it wasn't the people who made the first move. It wasn't Cyrus, but it was God who stepped in and God who began this process of reconciliation. We see that God's plans are sovereign. God uses whomever, whatever he desires to use. In this case, God used Cyrus, 
a pagan king, Cyrus was by no means a follower of God. And Cyrus had his own reasons for doing what he did. He probably wasn't intentionally setting out to carry out God's plan. He probably didn't even know God's plan. But Cyrus was making his decisions, but God was controlling everything in the end. And so we know that God is always in control. Nothing catches him by surprise. Uh, God is, is in control of everything. And even though we have a free will, the Bible makes it clear that we make our choices. Yet somehow God works out his will in our free will. God's plans are worked out. We can see this from the experience of the people of Israel with Pharaoh. You know, the Bible made it clear that God was working through Pharaoh. And it wasn't that God was causing Pharaoh to be stubborn. That was Pharaoh's own doing. Pharaoh made his choices. But God was using Pharaoh and Pharaoh's choices to, to bring about his own purposes for the people. And we can see the same thing in the story of Judas in the New Testament. The Bible makes it clear that even though Judas had made the choice to uh, betray Jesus, and Jesus had given him several chances to back out of this, Judas freely chose to betray Jesus. But God was using that betrayal to carry out his own purposes. So we don't have to worry that circumstances or events are going to overwhelm God that God is forced to change his mind, to go to plan B. You know, our experiences, they change so rapidly, and our plans have to change as well. Uh, there's a famous military saying that talks about uh, planning for battle, and it says that no battle plan survives the first contact with the enemy. In other words, the generals set out and plan what they want to do, and as soon as the fighting starts, Things begin going wrong, and they have to make adjustments and make new plans. But that doesn't happen with God. God is in charge. He knows what's going on. God never has to go to a plan B. Now, we can also see for, from this scripture that God's restoration is not a bare-bones economy model. God doesn't restore us just enough to get us back to where we were. God has an abundant restoration. You know, it's interesting to me, Cyrus doesn't just send them back. He doesn't just give them permission to return. He sends them back with ample resources. He brings out those gold and silver articles from the temple, those things that had been looted when Jerusalem was destroyed. And he sends those back. In all, it says, over 5,000 articles of gold and silver were sent back with the exiles. And also, their neighbors were commanded to provide them with silver and gold and goods and livestock, with valuable gifts and free will offerings. So we can see from this, God sent them back amply prepared. This wasn't just uh, the bare minimum that God was doing for them. God's restoration promises the impossible. You know, we often feel that we can be forgiven but not restored. We, we know once time passes, it's gone. Money can be restored. Property can be restored. But what about wasted years? Once they're used up, they're gone forever. But in the quote that I gave you before from Joel 2.25, 
God says, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. So God makes the promise to even give us back parts of our lives, uh, parts that we may have felt are gone forever. So as we look at this restoration that God had put in place, think of the emotions of the people of Israel. You know, they're in exile in Babylon. What do they feel when they hear the news that Cyrus had made this proclamation? And it's interesting to me, he not only uh, proclaims it verbally, but it says that he writes it down. You know, he makes it legal, makes it binding. Those that are in exile are going to be able to return home. You can imagine the joy, the excitement when they realize this, and especially when they realize they're going back with considerable resources. They have official permission to move back to the promised land to start uh, the temple up again. And you can imagine they would be overwhelmed by this. They're excited. They're making plans. But the fact is, some of them, in fact, many of them, are not necessarily that overjoyed. They don't want to go back. They are happy where they are. And so this brings us to the second main part of our lesson. A principle that we see from this scripture Restoration was available to all of the Jewish people who were in Babylon, but most of them remained in Babylon. Most of them stayed behind. They were given the opportunity to return to the promised land, but they chose to stay in a foreign country. Now, almost 70 years had passed. Those ages 70 and below, they had spent their entire lives in Babylon they really wouldn't have any personal memories of the promised land. They had grown up in exile. This was their normal. So they had no concept or understanding of the promised land. They, they had no idea of what they were missing out on uh, by not being in the land that God had given to them. And I think of today in our generation, how many have no idea of the salvation that God offers how many have no understanding of the value that comes from being in the will of God, from partaking of God's salvation? How many of them miss out because they can't imagine anything better than this life that they're now living? You know, Jesus, in one of his parables, describes the kingdom of heaven as a treasure hidden in a field. And he says, you know, there was a man who finds this treasure in a field. It's something he never suspected was there. And yet this hugely valuable treasure is something that he's willing to give up everything for. He goes out, he sells everything he has to buy that treasure. And Jesus is saying, you know, this is what the kingdom of heaven is. It's a treasure of extreme value, something that you never suspected, and yet it's there to be had. It's interesting, there was news this week that uh, a, a treasure had been found out west in the Rocky Mountains. About 10 years ago, a New Mexico art dealer by the name of Forrest Finn, he buried almost $2 million worth of gold and jewelry and gems in a chest. And then he published a series of nine clues to lead you to find this. And he put it on the Internet and he put it in different places and people were encouraged to go out and look for this treasure. And they've been looking for it for the past 10 years. 
In fact, there have been uh, approximately four people who've died because they wandered off trails or fell over cliffs or things like this out looking for this treasure. But finally, last week, someone found the treasure. And you can imagine, you know, the joy and the excitement of this man as he finally finds this chest with gold and and jewels and he realizes what he has. And so God is describing, you know, the, the excitement of the life that he offers as exactly this. You know, we come upon this this great salvation that God offers to us, something we never dreamed had existed. But there it is. We also sometimes see a failure of ourselves as the older generation, the failure to pass on the vision of the Holy Land, you know, to create an identity among the next generation, you know, to tell them you don't belong to this culture. You don't belong to this time. You are citizens of another place if you're a Christian. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so we have to try our best to get this message across. Now, those who remained behind in Babylon, they had grown comfortable there. They had adapted to living in a foreign land, to living among pagans. They had a thriving Jewish community. They had synagogues. Uh, They had some of the greatest of of the uh, Hebrew rabbis. In fact, in later years, some of the most important commentaries uh, on the Talmud, on the Jewish law, would come from Babylon. But the one thing they were missing was the temple. There was one place that had the temple, and that was the land that God had given them. And the temple was the only place where the physical presence of God existed in this world. So they had a lot of things, but they did not have the presence of God there as they did in Jerusalem. Now, returning to the promised land would have been a difficult, dangerous journey. Uh, It would have been somewhere between 800 and 1,000 miles. It would have been over harsh terrain. When they got to uh, the promised land, they would be returning to a land that had been devastated. You know, the cities had been destroyed. Jerusalem itself was in ruins. All of this would have to be rebuilt. And they would be among a hostile people. The people who were there in the land would object to their being back among them. And so it wasn't an easy task at all. But the ones who chose to go felt that it was worth it. Now, those who remained behind, they had transformed themselves as a nation. They had become a nation of merchants, uh, a nation of shopkeepers and traders. There was money to be made in Babylon. If they returned to the promised land, how would they live? Would they go back to just herding sheep or being small farmers? There were opportunities in Babylon, that opportunities that didn't exist in uh, the promised land. And so, you know, this reminds us a lot of our day. How many Christians in our world today, how often do we put more emphasis on economics than we do on spiritual concerns? A lot of times we are willing to compromise almost anything if we have material economic prosperity. So for those who chose to return, why did they do so? You know, most were unwilling to go back. Most of them did not want to give up the comfort and security of Babylon. They didn't want to make this difficult journey back to the promised land. So what drove those who did go back? 
And I want to look at two Psalms, Psalm 126 and then Psalm 137, that give us an idea of why these people chose to return. Now, we have a slide uh, that shows Psalm 126, verses 1 and 2. And the psalm begins, When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Basically, what they were saying was they couldn't believe that it was really happening. It was like a dream. All they could do was laugh in delight. You know, they returned because in the Holy Land, uh, they had the Lord's presence, and this was their highest joy. Psalm 137, 6 says, May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. They had chosen to delight in God, and they weren't willing to delight in any lesser thing that they could find in Babylon. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite writers, and he talks about what we choose to delight in and what we take pleasure in. And he says we have the, the idea that God finds us uh, or finds our pleasures too strong. And God wants us to tone down our pleasures and quit seeking for pleasure. But what he says is God doesn't find our pleasures too strong. God finds our pleasures too weak. We value these small, petty uh, pleasures that Satan gives to us when instead we could have far deeper, far lasting pleasures from God himself. And it's interesting, C.S. Lewis compares it to a child who's sitting in the mud playing making mud pies when he could be making a trip to the ocean, to a seaside resort. But he's happy in the mud because he doesn't realize there are far greater pleasures that await him in other places. You know, it's similar to us today. We're, we're playing in the ditch outside our house rather than going to Disneyland. Now, why would we swap one for the other? Uh, the next slide shows Psalm 37, verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Those who returned were genuinely repentant. They were sorrowful. They faced up to what they had lost. They faced up to the fact that they had sinned against God, that this judgment was God's righteous judgment against them. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul tells us, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. These were people who valued what they lost. And it's encouraging that once the people of Israel returned from exile, they were determined that they were going to do their best to serve God. And the days of sliding back into idolatry were pretty much finished. Now, as we saw last week with the Pharisees, uh, they got into other problems and had other issues that arose. But really, from that point on, the idea of whether they would serve God or serve idols, that question had finally been settled. The next slide shows Psalm 137.4, and it says, How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? The ones who returned realized True worship could only happen when they were in the place that God had prepared for them, when they were where they were supposed to be. The songs of Zion, the songs of praise, would have no meaning. 
they would only be a sham, an outward display, if they were sung in Babylon. These were people who were interested in reality. They didn't want to just put on an outward show. So the reality, if they were in Babylon, was that any singing of these songs would only be a pretense. And, you know, it reminds us how often is our worship really just kind of a charade. You know, it's an act that we put on when we go to church. We do it for show. We go through the motions rather than sing the true songs of God from our heart. The next slide shows Psalm 137, verse 5. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. So these are people who valued God's presence more than any skill or ability that they might have. They valued the presence of God even more than being able uh, to live a normal life to having a skillful right hand, which would have been important for earning their living, or having a tongue that was able to speak. To them, there was nothing that was worth more than God's presence. Jesus tells us basically the same thing in the New Testament, where he says, If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better to lose a hand than to end up in hell. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to lose an eye than for your whole body to go to hell. And so we can see from this that these people valued the presence of God above everything else. Uh, another verse that we have on slide here is Psalm 127, verse 8. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. Those who returned from Babylon, they realized God's judgment was coming. The enemies of God would receive their reward. They knew Babylon was not their friend. They had chosen to side with God. God's enemies were their enemies. They realized God was going to work judgment as a just God, he could do nothing else. Justice would prevail. And those who were in opposition to God would reap the rewards. And so they knew that Babylon would sooner or later face judgment. And they knew that they did not want to be friends of Babylon. They wanted to be friends of God. Now, we can see this from the life of Moses. Uh, Hebrews 11.25 tells us about Moses. It says, He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Or, as some versions put it, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now, you know, we have the idea that we can be Christians and yet we can be friends with our culture, with our world. But Scripture tells us otherwise. James 4, 4 says, Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Uh, the world is this ungodly system of human living that's all around us, lives that are lived in separation from God. And so we have this warning. In Romans 12, 2 tells us why. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that my, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When we become friends with this culture, with this world around us, we accept their values. We accept the world's thinking. We accept uh, the mindset of the world. So as Christians today, when we look at these two uh, groups of Israelites, those who had chosen to return to the promised land, those who chose to stay behind in Babylon, which ones do we identify with? Are we those who are comfortable in the world or are we those who are willing to do anything to have God's presence in our lives? You know, where is our citizenship? When James confronted uh, those he was writing to, when he confronted them about being friends with the world, he begins by calling them adulterers. And that seems like a strong word, but James is saying, you've committed spiritual adultery. You've crossed the line. You've given part of your heart and soul to this world around you. Now, the prophets had warned the people over and over, if you break the covenant, if you commit idolatry, if you follow other gods, you will be sent into exile. You'll have to leave this promised land that God gave you. But the prophets also comforted them. There's the promise. God is going to restore you, to bring you back. So the long exile to Babylon, it was finally over. The Israelites had returned to the land that God had given them. The rebuilding of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, all of this was underway. But when the people looked around them, they recognized the exile was not truly over. Some of the people had returned. Many had not. They were back in their own land, but they were more or less as slaves in their own land. They were dominated by foreign powers, by foreign governments. And so they realized that there was more to come, that God had more plans in mind for them. And so they realized that the exile really would not be over until God sent the Messiah. God would send the one who would finally restore the people of Israel and would create a totally new relationship between God and his people. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So the Israelites realized, they understood, God was planning a much bigger restoration when the Messiah would come. And this restoration would not just be for the people of Israel. It would be for all people. God would send the Messiah to restore Jews and Gentiles into this new covenant relationship with God. And this new covenant took place when Jesus went to the cross. The night he was arrested, he had what we call the Last Supper with his disciples. And he took bread and wine and he gave it to them. And he said, you know, this bread is my body broken for you. This wine, it's the blood of the covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And so with his death, Jesus completed the exile. The exile finally was over. The physical exile, the spiritual exile, the full promises of God could now be realized. All of God's people, both Jews and Gentiles, could now serve him with a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. They could serve him not because they were obeying an outward set of rules, but because they had this love for God 
in their hearts. So in today's scripture, the Jewish people are provided with a way out of exile, a way back to the promised land. But many of them chose not to return. They chose to stay in exile. So we find ourselves facing a similar choice. We've been provided with a way out of exile. Through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, we can be brought back to a relationship with God. But we have to be willing to do this. You know, will we choose this release from bondage? Or will we choose not to come out of exile? Will we choose to stay in slavery to sin? Have we grown too comfortable in our sin? And so that's a question that I want to leave you with. You know, are you one who's determined to come out of exile or are you comfortable with your life, with living in sin? God has promised us something far greater than what Babylon can offer. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture that we've been shown today of how you restore our lives, how you bring us back from the sin and the ruin uh, that we find ourselves in and provide a way of restoration. And we ask that you would help us to take advantage of this, not to be comfortable in sin, but to do everything we can, Lord, to take advantage of this way back that you have promised us. And we'll give you the praise in your name. Amen. <music>